Welcome to Murder and Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Summer. Lisa isn't here with us today, guys. She is getting ready to homeschool her two kiddos. Um, She has two daughters in school, and she has the baby, so she's got her hands full right now. I'm illness going around her house, and I have had some technical difficulties, so it's been a while since we've recorded. We apologize. So, that being said... Welcome to episode seven. Since school is starting, I wanted to do a school-related show today. So, with school starting and we're in the middle of a pandemic, it's kind of an interesting time, a scary time to be going to school. I have two kids that just went off to college and one that is staying home and going to college and I have to say it's been pretty scary and you know my nieces are being homeschooled my husband's actually doing a master's program online thankfully he's not going to college and I have to say that I woke up uh, about a week ago feeling a little bit jealous with everybody going off to school and starting new semesters and well I realized I am not going to school for the first time in a long time. It's actually been a year, almost two years now since I graduated with my master's and I'm not going to school and I never thought I would be sad to say that. So I am really excited to be doing this podcast and having some new and exciting adventures and projects to do because I'm not going to school. So today, I am going to talk to you about a murder and a mystery that has to do with schools. Um, So we'll start off with our murder today, which is the murder of Greg Smart. Some of you might remember when this happened. Uh, Some of you might be way too young to remember when this happened because it did happen in the early 90s, but we will jump right into it. Gregory William Smart was born September 4th, 1965 in Nashua, New Hampshire. As a teenager and a young adult, he was known as a partier. Uh, He liked to have a good time. He wasn't a good student and he really had no interest in going to college. He wanted to just stay home. He liked to party, liked going out, liked just, you know, hanging around, having a good time. And Pamela Wojas was born August 16th, 1967 in Coral Gables, Florida. She was raised in Miami, Florida. Her father was an airline pilot and they moved to New Hampshire when she was in eighth grade. She was a good student, a cheerleader through middle school and high school. She was known for being somewhat serious. She made good grades. She was friendly and sweet and intelligent. She really liked school. She was really serious about her schoolwork. But she also liked to have a good time sometimes. And she decided when she graduated from high school to move back to Florida and went to college at the University of Florida majoring in communications. When she wasn't in school, she was interning at a local television station 
She worked at a local college radio station, was the host of a program named Metal Madness because she was really into heavy metal music. She was also the station's promotions director, and she handed out backstage passes. She got to go backstage with acts like the Scorpions and White Snake. Now, remember, this was in the late 80s, so this was when these bands were really huge. She was really big into this music. She was known as the Maiden of Metal. She was discovering a bit of a wild side. In high school, she liked to have fun. In college, she decided she really liked to have fun, but she was still pretty serious with her schoolwork. Don't know when she had time to have fun and discover this wild side, really, when she was going to school, interning at a television station, working at a radio station, was their promotions director, was doing a show a radio show and you know doing all this backstage stuff but she was still pretty serious about her schoolwork and stuff she was doing really well in school and she was working pretty hard she came back for Christmas break back to New Hampshire for Christmas break in 1988 and went to a party with some friends, and that is where she met Greg Smart. And they really hit it off during this party. They realized that they both really liked heavy metal music. They connected very quickly. They spent the whole Christmas break together, and some of her friends said that once they got together, it was just Pamela and Greg. They were instantly a couple. They tried to make things work long distance, but he moved to Florida and decided that he wanted to be near her. So he moved down there. He got a job. He worked and he lived close to her. After she graduated, they moved back to New Hampshire and they got married in 1989. So, you know, that last year of college, he lived down there, and they made it through that year, came back, got married, and in the 1989-1990 school year, Pamela Smart, now, because she got married to Greg Smart, started working at the Winnicunit High School as the media coordinator. Greg Smart who was the party boy, you know, never going to grow up, always, you know, just just doing the jobs to get by, to have enough money in his pocket to go party. Now he's working at an insurance agency as an insurance agent with his father. They have a nice condo in a small town. He's settling into adulthood. They are you know, married bliss, everything seems perfect, you know, they have the perfect little life. They seem to be good for each other. He really has grown up in the last year, and especially since he's married Pamela, things seem to be going really well. Friends say that they had the perfect marriage, that they're crazy about each other, and life seems absolutely perfect for these two until May 1st, 1990 just six days before their one-year wedding anniversary. And this is when 
Pamela, who stayed late at work that night um, because there was a school board meeting. And so she stayed and went to the school board meeting and she returned and found Greg laying just inside the front door, her house ransacked, a candlestick holder laying next to him. She thought that he had been hit over the head with the candlestick holder and was knocked out. She saw that the house was ransacked. She was afraid somebody was still in her house, so she didn't go into the house. She ran next door, knocked on the door, got somebody to come to the door, went into the neighbor's house and called the police from there, where she waited until the police arrived. The police came in. They found that he wasn't hit over the head with the candlestick. He'd been shot in the head. He was dead at the scene. They went through the house. They found that there was some jewelry missing, but his wallet was still in his pocket. There was money in the wallet, credit cards. His wedding ring was still on his finger. There were stereo systems, speakers. There were, you know, there were things of value still in the home. Television, things that you would think burglars would have taken. And even the jewelry that was missing wasn't like expensive jewelry. They did notice when they were walking around that there wasn't a forced entry, but the door to the balcony that actually had stairs going down from this balcony to the ground um, was ajar. And the root cellar door was unlocked that went into a cellar and there was access to the condo from that cellar. So there were two entry points that could have led to access to this uh, condo that were open that a burglar could have gotten in through there. So what it appeared that Greg may have walked into a robbery So this was at first thought to be a robbery gone wrong. Based on the way his body was positioned, it appeared that there was a struggle and that he had fought with his attacker or attackers and had been killed during this struggle. So while the scene was being processed, police canvassed the neighborhood and searched Greg's car for any evidence of what might have happened. And... Police went and talked to neighbors and, you know, were talking to people that knew Greg and just trying to get information on what was going on. So neighbors told police that the couple often had loud parties and that they thought drugs were involved. Police found marijuana in Greg's truck. Not a lot of marijuana, just, you know, some to show that, you know, he was maybe using a little bit. So this made them think that maybe this was a drug deal or had something to do with drugs. That's why the place was ransacked and, you know, somebody had killed him. And that's why it appeared that not much was really taken. If anything was really taken, you know, it was a message or it was, you know, he had just walked in on them trying to leave a message or he had fought or, you know, maybe it was even you know, something to that effect that an argument had broke out and they tried to make it look like a robbery. So that was an angle that they were looking at as well. 
So during all of this time, while police are questioning neighbors and people that knew Greg and they're going through, you know, the car, the scenes being processed and all of this stuff, Pamela was with her friends and she was waiting for the police to come and talk to her. Other than taking her statement when they got there, they really hadn't talked to her. Uh, She waited until early that morning, and she finally asked a friend to go and tell the police, the detective, that she wanted to talk to them, which is very odd. I mean, she's the grieving widow. You would think she would be inconsolable somewhere with family, friends, you know, not worrying about what police, you know, about talking to police, she would be worried about the fact that her husband of not quite a year was dead. Um, but no, she was to talk to the police and get her side of the story told. They took her to the police station in the early morning hours of May 2nd, 1990. And she found herself giving the details of her day to the police. The detectives thought it was odd that she was really concise with her timing and very worried about making sure that they knew that she was at a school board meeting that night, that she had not left the school from the time she left that morning to go to work until after the school board meeting. She didn't come home in between. She wanted to make sure they knew, you know, how late she was out, exact timing of when she left the school. Detectives noted that she gave her statement without really any changes facial features. You know, she was very calm. She didn't break down. Everything was really matter-of-fact and concise. Uh, She didn't look like the grieving widow that they would expect. So this was May 2nd. May 4th, 1990, three days after the death of her husband, Pamela Smart buries her 24-year-old husband. It's just one day before their wedding anniversary. Friends say that Pamela was hysterical in the privacy of her home. And even during the funeral, they say that she needed help to stand, even threw herself over the casket weeping. She was very distraught at the loss of her husband. She openly mourned the loss of her husband outside of the public eye. That, you know, when she was in public, when police were around, she was very under control. She she didn't show anything. But when she was in private, when she was just with family, just with friends, that she was very, that she was very distraught. So they tried to paint a picture of a woman who was grieving. You know, they told them that she was grieving, that she just wasn't doing it openly. However, the next day, on May 5th, 1990, her one-year wedding anniversary with her husband that didn't make it to their one-year wedding anniversary, the day after she buried her husband, Pamela calls a reporter and asks for an interview. This is where there are differing stories as to why this call was made. So, in a lot of articles, now, to prepare for this story, I read, I I couldn't even tell you, I lost count of how many different articles coming from 
newspapers, magazines. I did read Wikipedia. I always start with Wikipedia just to get some facts. Court TV. I watched the videos on Court TV. It's very interesting. Um, you can find those online. Um, I watched documentary on ID Channel. So I did a lot of research on this. And there are differing um, reasons. The reporter that she contacted said that she contacted him because he was the only reporter that wasn't spreading gossip about him, her. That when she contacted him, she said that this was because he was the only one that was not saying that she had killed her husband, that she was cheating on her husband, that she was doing all this stuff that later comes out that maybe she was. But Pamela stated that she contacted him because he was calling her, giving her all of this gossip and saying, I'm going to print this stuff if you don't give me an interview and comment on it. So she wanted to defend herself and she wanted to give her story. So either way, she had been asked not to speak to the media. She had been asked by police not to talk to any media sources because they didn't want details of the investigation getting out yet. So it's there went her one year anniversary. She just buried her husband the day before. And now she's calling this reporter to give an interview. During this interview, the reporter stated that Pamela was staging the interview herself. Now remember, you know, she has a degree in communications. She is a media manager at the school. This is what she does. This is what she loves. So here she's staging the interview for herself. She's suggesting how they should sit, pointers on what he should ask her, what topics they should discuss. At one point, she even took out the top of her wedding cake from the freezer and suggested that she should hold hold this because it was their one-year anniversary. The reporter stated that she didn't act like a grieving widow and was more interested in making the story look good rather than getting her side of the story out. It was all about framing the story and making it look good and sensational. And she was thinking like a reporter rather than a grieving widow. So some of that really could have been, you know, a way of coping. Thinking as a therapist, I'm looking at this as this is something that she enjoys. You know, she enjoys being a reporter and this type of stuff. And so this was something she could throw herself into. And if she could put her mind into this reporter mode rather than the grieving widow mode and she can stage all this and think okay what would make this story look good how could I do this in a way that it would look like a really good story she's dissociating she's pulling herself out of it and not thinking of herself as the subject and as the grieving widow she's thinking of herself as a reporter but this does look really odd to the reporter and to anybody else that's witnessing this because yesterday she buried her husband. Today's her one-year wedding anniversary and 
instead of being broken down and, you know, barely getting out of bed, she's staging this story about herself. So, Pamela told the reporter about finding her husband and what she knew of the investigation. She stated that she had nothing to hide and did not think she was doing anything wrong. The police state that they had told her not to speak to any reporters and that she was interfering with the investigation by giving too much information to the press. By giving so much information, by telling exactly how she found the body, exactly what it looked like, exactly what her home looked like, exactly what they were telling her. You know, she's giving away information that maybe they wanted to hold on to because maybe there was something that they wanted to use to catch the killer with. And she's just giving it out there for everybody to know and stuff. So they felt like she was trying to make herself look innocent and that she was enjoying the spotlight. You know, she's playing this poor me. You know, this is all going on to me. This is happening to me. And, you know, I'm enjoying everybody talking about me. Everybody wanting to know what I know, what I saw, what I'm going through and stuff. So it was also during this three-day period that police received an anonymous phone call telling them that they needed to talk to a 15-year-old girl named Cecilia Pierce from Winnicott High School. So, Cecilia, police kind of recognized that name as one that they had heard when they were going through the list of people that may or may not have anything to do with Pamela and the school and, you know, just people that had anything to do with Pamela. Because she was in the school, she was um, a media coordinator there, she also did a mentorship program, you know, they wanted to know some of the names of her students that she worked with and stuff, and Cecilia's name had come up, and that's the only way they knew this name. They actually had to go back into notes to figure out where they had heard this name before. Because it didn't stick out or anything. So they figured out where they heard the name. They met with Cecilia and her mother. And at first she didn't want to say anything. She just sat there. She was closed off and defensive. And police are like, why are we talking to you? You know, why did we get this phone call saying that we need to talk to you? And you're not talking to us. What's so special about you? You know, she's sitting there, she's got her arms folded, she doesn't want anything to do with it, so they're having to ask these questions. And finally, they ask, have you ever been in the condo? Are we going to find any evidence that you had anything to do with this? And she's not responding. And they said, okay, well, have you been in the condo? Are we going to find your fingerprints in there? Because... If you're not going to tell us anything and we find your fingerprints in there, it's going to look like maybe you were in there the night of the murder. And so she tells them that she stayed at uh, Pamela Smart's condo the week before the murder. And that was all the information she would give. So around the same time, uh, Ralph Welch, who was a little bit older, than Cecilia and some of the others. 
goes to Vance Latame Sr. You know, he's a next door neighbor. Um, Ralph, I want to believe, is like 18, 19. You know, he's just out of high school, so he still knows some of these high school kids. He still hangs around with some of these high school kids. And he is a next door neighbor. And he goes to Vance Latame Sr. and tells him that one of his guns was used in the murder. So Latame goes through his gun collection and picks out a revolver and takes it to the police station where he tells police about what Welch said. He told the police that he couldn't have this on his conscience and if his son had committed the murder using his gun, you know, he had to turn it in. He had to do something. He couldn't have this coming back on him and them going in there and finding this gun and thinking that he had done it. So, being the good father that he was, he got the gun and took it into the police station. So, when police asked him how he knew which gun had been used, Latame explained that he had taken the revolver to the shooting range and he hadn't cleaned the gun when he put it away. And that morning when he was looking through his guns after Ralph Welch had told him that it was possible uh, one of his guns had been used. He found that this gun had been cleaned and it shouldn't have been. So that was the one that he was pretty sure had been used. Police check the gun and find that it was the same one that was used to shoot Greg Smart. So now they have a murder weapon and they know that somebody in the Latimer house has been involved and they're thinking that it was most likely Vance Latame Jr. Or he goes by J.R. was probably involved. They just have to figure out how he was connected to Greg Smart. And why he would commit this act of murder. But it didn't take him long to connect him to Pam Smart through Cecilia Pierce and the mentorship program that Pamela ran at the school. See, Pamela ran this program called Project Self-Esteem in Winnicott High School. Cecilia Pierce was an intern with the program and she worked really closely with Pamela. She and Pamela claimed to be friends and to be really close. There was also another kid in this program. His name was William Billy Flynn. He was friends with J.R. Latimer and Ralph Welch, the guy, the next door neighbor to J.R. Latimer, was also friends with them. So now police had the gun used to kill Greg Smart. They didn't know exactly who used the gun. The gun had been cleaned, so there were no fingerprints. There were several suspects that had access to the gun. Ralph Welch, who had told Vance Latimer Sr. that his gun had been used, wouldn't say any more. They had suspicions that J.R. Latimer and Billy Flynn were involved in this. Um, because they had a connection with Pamela Smart. They were really close friends. 
And considering that Latimer had access to this gun, it made sense. And Vance Latimer had no connection with Pamela, didn't even know who she was. But there was no real evidence of this. They, they didn't have anything to prove that this is what happened. So the only real connection here, the only thing that they had, that police had, that they thought that could help them was Cecilia. So Cecilia Pierce, police thought, was the key to breaking this case. See, she seemed to be at the center of this. Not that she played a specific role in this murder, but that she knew information that was going to break this case. Or at least she had enough information that was going to cause the pieces to fall into place. They didn't even know she knew how big of a role she played in this case. So they tried to get her to talk, but she really, she refused. She didn't want to talk to them. You know, she's a teenager. She's scared. They don't know really how much she knows, how involved she is, what her role was in this murder, but she's refusing to talk. When they get tried to get her to talk, she folds her arms. She won't say anything, but then she becomes afraid that she's going to be arrested. Police are talking about other suspects that they have, persons of interest, and she's afraid that she might be one of those persons of interest because she does have information. She does know that she has information, and she's afraid that if she doesn't come forward with this information that she might be arrested for this murder. So she decides that she should open up. So according to the articles and documentaries that I watched, Cecilia was a very shy teen. Um, She didn't seem to have a lot of friends. And when she joined Project Self-Esteem and became an intern with Pamela, she quickly became close to the young woman. Um, Pamela was in her early 20s. She was like 22 years old. You know, she wasn't that much older than these students. And she was really pretty and she was really sweet. She seemed to become really close to these teenagers herself. With Pamela, Cecilia seemed to find somebody that she fit in with. Somebody that she felt like she had a friend. She called her more like a big sister to her. Um, She said they talked about everything. But then Billy Flynn joined the program. And when Billy Flynn joined the program, I don't think it was at the very beginning that things started to change. But there was a point when things started to change between Pamela and Cecilia because of Billy Flynn. Cecilia started to feel like a third wheel. She started to feel like even though she was still really involved in everything in the program and she was always there, you know, she got out of class to do all these projects with them. She went everywhere with them. She was included with everything, but it was more like she was a front. She was there, but she was just there. Like the conversation was all between 
Billy and Pamela. And there was always like this secret language between Billy and Pamela and the secret world between them. And Cecilia was just kind of left out. So it was kind of like she was involved because nothing could be going on as long as she was there. Nobody would suspect anything going on as long as she was there. But if Pamela were getting Billy Flynn out of class and taking Billy Flynn off campus and all of this stuff, and it was just Pamela and Billy, people would start to talk. But if it was the three of them, then nobody would suspect anything, right? So Cecilia told police that there was a lot of flirting going on between Billy and Pamela. It started off as just a little bit of flirting here and there. And then they got this big media project. It was a television ad for orange juice. It was a contest. A lot of schools were entering it. And so the three of them were working on this commercial together. So they spent a lot of time during school hours and after school hours. They would go off campus during school hours to go shoot on location. And they would go um, back to Pamela's condo to celebrate or to look at film and things like that. Uh, Pamela and Cecilia were actresses. Billy was the cameraman. They probably took a lot longer than what was needed to actually film this commercial, but it was their excuse to be together. So the flirtation grew heavier and more serious during the time that they were, were filming this. And then during this time, very shortly before the murder, Pamela invited Cecilia and Billy over to watch a movie and stay the night at her condo. After the movie, Pamela and Billy disappeared. And Cecilia was downstairs and she walked upstairs and walked in on Billy and Pamela having sex in the master bedroom. This gave a motive for Billy Flynn for the murder. And possibly for Pamela as well for the murder of her husband. So this gave police what they were looking for. A motive for the murder and a kind of timeline for what was going on. It still didn't explain how J.R. Latimer was involved. It didn't give enough to prove that Pamela was involved. So they still wanted Cecilia to get more information from Pamela. But it did prove that Billy had a really good motive for the murder of Greg Smart. Because he was sleeping with Pamela Smart. So they tapped Cecilia's phone lines and coached her on what to say and had her call Pamela. But every time she would call her and try to talk, Pamela would find excuses to get off the phone. She wouldn't stay on the phone for very long. And anytime she would try to talk about the murder, she would just absolutely change the subject and hang up. So they decided to up their game a little bit and put a body wire on Cecilia, of course, with the okay of Cecilia's mother. 
and have her go meet Pamela face-to-face in her office and talk to her. Well, this worked better than they ever thought that it would because Pamela was a whole lot more open with Cecilia face-to-face. When she got there, she told Cecilia that she had been worried that her phone lines were bugged, and that's why she went and talked to her over the phone, which is funny because her phone lines weren't bugged. It was Cecilia's that were. She told Cecilia that she needed to keep her mouth shut because if she didn't, she would be sending Pamela to jail. She would be sending Billy to jail. She would be sending JR to jail. She would be sending Pete Randall to jail and Raymond Fowler to jail. So these are names that hadn't come up yet, names that the police didn't know. So she implicated all these people in the murder that hadn't come up and hadn't been implicated before. The problem was that the police were listening to these tapes in real time. So they did get this information and they were able to to find more evidence. But these tapes, you know, technology isn't always our friend. And these tapes did not record very well. So the audio was distorted and at places went in and out. So a lot of the damning information did not record very well. And especially the information about Pamela herself. So when these were tried, they tried to use these in court, it didn't go over so well. They did get somebody to transcribe them, but it was somebody out of the police department. And basically they used somebody out of the police department to listen to these tapes. They could have, in my opinion, possibly had police officers that were there and heard them in real time saying, oh, well, this is what it actually said using their own memory and saying, oh, well, this is what it said. And it just, the tapes shouldn't have been used because the tapes weren't, they were too distorted. You couldn't hear most of it. So police also found out that Pamela had a $140,000 life insurance policy for her husband. This isn't, this isn't unheard of. And especially her husband was an insurance agent Her father-in-law was an insurance agent. So, okay, she had a life insurance policy on her husband. You know, my husband and I both have life insurance policies on each other. Neither one of us have huge ones. I don't think either one of us even have that much. I hope not. I hope he doesn't have a big life insurance policy on me. But they did find that. The fact that she did have a life insurance policy out on her husband. She had been married less than a year. She was having an affair with a 15, now 16-year-old boy. She did admit to the affair. She claimed that she had nothing to do with the murder, but she was sleeping with the student. There wasn't a whole lot of evidence, but they used that to go ahead and arrest her. They arrested Billy, J.R., Pete, and Raymond. 
all for the murder of Greg Smart. The boys all agreed to testify against Pamela. And in return, they would get reduced sentences, even though they admitted to committing the murder or being a part of the murder. And Pamela never admitted any guilt. But here is their stories. This is what they say happened as far as how they tell it. Pamela Smart was working at Winnicott High School as the media director. And she was running Project Self-Esteem where she was a mentor. This is when Billy Flinton met Pamela. was through Project Self-Esteem. She's young. She's pretty. She begins flirting with him. This is according to Billy. She begins flirting with him. And at the time, he doesn't have a whole lot of experience with girls, much less a 22-year-old woman. They are having more frequent meetings of this Project Self-Esteem. They're working really closely together on this orange juice commercial. And it's just the three of them, Billy, Cecilia, and Pamela. So they talk a lot about Pamela's problems. She's having all these problems in her marriage. And he's starting to feel closer to her. They're flirting a lot. She's smiling at him. She's, you know, giving little hints that she likes him. She's making suggestive comments to him. Things like that. During this time that she's doing this project self-esteem and she's met Billy, she says at first when she met Billy, she really didn't think a whole lot about him. He came in He's a 15-year-old boy. Yeah, he was cute, but he was a 15-year-old boy that was part of this project. And she was assigned Cecilia and Billy for this. So she's working with them. No big deal. And then her husband admits to having an affair. And she's feeling really down. And... It's really bugging her and she finally breaks down and she tells Cecilia and Billy seems to notice that something's going on. He asks her if she's okay. He seems really sensitive. She starts talking about it. He seems upset that her husband would be like that. He's telling her how beautiful she is. He gives her lots of compliments It makes her feel good. They start flirting and she realizes that she really likes him. And the longer this goes, um, she starts to fall for him. They start talking more. She starts finding ways to spend more time with him. She finally confides in Cecilia that she's falling in love with this boy. So finally, you know, they've been filming this commercial. They've spent a lot of time together. They're finishing up this commercial. And at some point during this time, you know, there's been all this suggestive talk. And Pamela invites Billy and Cecilia over to her house to watch the movie Nine and a Half Weeks. She had asked Billy if he'd ever watched it. She mentions the sex scenes in the movie. And then after they watch the movie, she takes Billy upstairs to reenact these sex scenes from the movie. 
This is Billy's first time to have sex. She does a strip tease for him. She does all kinds of things. And Cecilia walks in on them at some point during that night and sees them having sex. Pamela admits that they had sex. She denies reenacting any movie scenes. She denies that this was pre-planned. She denies any of that. She says that it just happened. The next day, Billy says that Pamela tells her that if they're going to be together, her husband has to die. So this is where they start to plan the murder of Greg Smart. Pamela tells him that she will get $140,000 from his life insurance policy and that she will pay him $500 to kill her husband and that they can be together once he's dead. Billy, of course, doesn't know how to kill anybody. He's never done that. And so he tells her that he's going to need help. And so she agrees to pay his friend, Pete Randall, $500 as well. So this is when they start planning the murder and they get Pete Randall involved in this planning. Pamela tells this differently. She says the next day she is really upset at herself for what she's done. She is really heartbroken that she has stooped to this level that as much as she loves Billy she loves her husband more and although he has cheated on her she never intended to cheat on him and so she tells Billy that they can't be together anymore because she's married she told police and she also said on the witness stand that she might have said as long as Greg was there, she couldn't be with Billy, but she never told him that she wanted Greg dead. She says she never said the words that she wanted him dead. The words dead, the words kill, never came out of her mouth. She never mentioned murder or discussed a plan to murder her husband with him. She said she loved her husband and she broke up with Billy the day after they slept together. Cecilia was caught up in planning the murder too and she even told Billy where he could find a gun. She testified on the witness stand and she had told police during the time when they were interrogating her that she had told Billy the owners of the restaurant that she worked at in a, in a small strip mall had a gun in their car. They kept it in the glove compartment of their car. And she knew this because one time as she was working, the wife had told her that the gun made her nervous. She didn't like it in the house, so she made her husband keep it in the glove compartment of the car. And that car was usually parked outside the restaurant. And Billy had actually broken into the car to try and steal that gun, but the gun wasn't there. That was when Cecilia realized that this was actually a plan. She had not 
when they were talking about this and when she mentioned this gun, she said that she thought that this was all a joke, that it was just something that they were talking about. It was kind of like, oh yeah, now that I'm sleeping with this other guy, I've got to murder my husband. Let's talk about ways that we can murder my husband. And it was just something to talk about. And she really didn't think that they were really going to do it. And that's why she added to the conversation. She really just wanted to be a part of the conversation because she was hardly ever a part of the conversation. She was just jumping in. So Pamela said in a very recent interview that Cecilia didn't have any part in this conversation with her or Billy because obviously according to her this conversation never happened and that Cecilia just wanted intention and inserted herself into the investigation to get that attention that afterwards when this investigation came out she wanted to get attention so she said that she was a part of this conversation she said that she had heard it that she had been a part of it and that she had done this so that she could be in the trial so that people would talk to her so that she could be you know in the news and in the spotlight for a little while but again Pamela denies these conversations ever happened either seriously or jokingly now, I do want to point out that Billy did get in trouble. He was caught breaking into that car at the strip mall. And so that did really did happen. And she says that she had told him that the gun would be in that car. And he did break into that car. So, who knows uh, if Pamela wasn't involved in that conversation at least Billy and Cecilia were involved in that conversation. Now, whether he told her that Pamela was involved in this and that they were having this conversation, or it was a joking conversation, or what happened, I don't know. But I can say that, you know, it was said that he did get in trouble, that this did happen. And she did testify that she had told him where this gun was. Cecilia tried to talk to Pamela over the phone uh, after the murder and ask why she had told Billy to kill her husband. But Pamela wouldn't talk to her. She kept hanging up the phone. That was when the police had bugged her phone. And so she wore the wire and went into the office to talk to her face-to-face -face, trying to get evidence for the police and that was when Pamela said all that incriminating information and the police heard it in real time but the but the recording wasn't working properly so they didn't get very clear recordings for the actual trial and so Pamela's attorney was not happy with the recordings and he said that the jury should not consider this evidence 
because these recordings were not clear enough and the stuff that the prosecution claim was said on there was hearsay because the person that had transcribed this, all of it was coming from either memory from that time that could be faulty. It was coming from somebody that was just listening to the tapes and trying to decipher it. And then they're listening to the tapes and reading this transcription and then trying to make up their mind, is this transcription really what this is saying? And then they're hearing the testimony from these people who say that, you know, this is what happened. And then the conversation that Cecilia says she had that the police officers said they heard firsthand. And then Pamela, who's saying, no, this didn't happen. So they're saying you can't use this because this is all hearsay, uh, memories can be faulty, this might not actually be really what was said, so you really can't use this. Pamela said that she was just going along with Cecilia when Cecilia came in there, that she believed that Cecilia knew more information than what she was letting on. She believed that if Cecilia wasn't involved in the murder, she knew who was and she knew what happened. So she was trying to get her to tell Pamela what was going on, what had happened to her husband and why it had happened. At this point, I don't know if she truly believed that Billy had murdered her husband if she had allowed herself to open up to that belief that the boy that she loved had murdered her husband, but she believed that Cecilia knew or had been involved in this and that she could tell her information that Pamela didn't know. So she was going along and she was saying, you know, all these things that she thought would get Cecilia to talk and give her information because Cecilia was being so open and was saying, well, why why are you saying this? Why didn't you do that? And wanting to talk about this. But Cecilia never did give her information. She was fishing for information. So now let's go back to Pete Randall. This is Billy's friend who was offered $500 to help murder Pamela's husband. Pete Randall borrowed his grandma's car and picked up Billy and Pamela. Of course, this is his story that he told on the witness stand and that he told police. He borrowed his grandma's car, picked up Pamela and Billy, and in that car, the three of them discussed how to kill Greg Smart. He said that during this discussion, a knife was mentioned and Pamela became very upset at this. She absolutely did not want a knife used. She said that a knife was too messy, that it would get blood everywhere, and she had white furniture, and she did not want her furniture ruined. So she wanted a gun used. 
because a gun would not be messy. And then she spent a lot of time talking about how she should react when she found the body. She asked, when I go in and find the body, should I scream? Should I run out of the house and go to a neighbor? Should I call the police from my house? Should I call the police from their house? How should I act? Should I act surprised? Should I be heartbroken? Should How should I do this? And they spent a lot of time talking about how she should act so that she got her part just right. Pamela denies that this ever happened. She denies being in the grandmother's car. She denies ever talking to Pete Randall. She denies ever having any part in this discussion. So, during the trial, it was pointed out when Pete gave this testimony about this car and this conversation that Pete and Billy's testimony was identical. And, you know, when they when they testify, they aren't in the room at the same time. So, Pete didn't come in and testify while Billy was sitting there. And then Billy go up and testify after hearing everything. And him just repeat the same story. So, it was pointed out that, you know, well, if this didn't happen, then how is it that these two boys, you know... They have the same exact story of what was said and how this conversation went in this car, yet she's saying that this conversation never happened. So Pamela's attorney um, asked each of them the question when he ca- when he came up to cross-examine them after, you know, asking his questions and stuff, and he ended his cross-examination with a question, and I can't remember exactly what the question was, but it was something similar to, you know, who was the last person you talked to before you went to sleep last night? And each of them said the other person. And so this caught them up because what it did was he was able to point out that their jail cells were side by side. And so they had constant communication. So the whole time that they're sitting in jail during this trial, they're sitting there and they are plotting what they're going to say during this trial. They have the time to prepare their testimony. So they can get everything ready. They can get their story straight. And so he kind of was able to point that out. All four boys told identical stories, you know, that Pamela told them that she would leave the door open for them. She left the balcony door unlocked, and Pete and Billy went into the home through that. And they started pulling things out of the drawers and throwing things around, making it look like it was a burglary, staging everything. And then they waited on Greg to return home from work. When he got there, they met him at the door and surprised him. He put a knife to his throat and told him to be quiet and be still. At one point, Greg asked why they were doing this. And Billy just told him to shut up. And Billy asked God to help him. He said, you know, God help me. And then he pointed the gun at Greg's head and shot him. And then they left the condo. 
went to the car where JR was sitting in the driver's seat and Raymond was sitting there with him, waiting for them. And then they fled to their hideout with the hopes of just sitting and writing out the worst of this, waiting for it to blow over. And then they were going to go back to their lives. And the thought was, you know, Billy was going to get $500 and Pete was going to get $500 and they would split the money with the other two boys and Billy and Pamela would get back together as soon as, you know, everything kind of blew over and settled down and they would live out their little fairy tale life and everything was going to be great. And nobody would question the fact that she's with this teenage boy and her husband was just murdered. So they thought that everything was going to be just fine. The boys hid out for a few days before they gave themselves up to the police. They thought that they could get away with this. And then when Vance Latimer Sr. turned in the gun and talked about his son, they knew. Police knew who had done this. And it wasn't long before they were arrested. And then Pamela Smart was arrested at the school. Billy had a set of speakers from Pamela's condo that he said was given to him as part of his $500 payment, which... Pamela denies. She says that she didn't give him anything, that she hadn't paid them anything. None of them had received any type of payment other than those speakers, but they were taken from the condo. And she had already gotten her insurance money. Billy hadn't heard or seen Pamela since Greg had been killed. He thought that they were just kind of riding things out and just waiting and then they were going to get their payment and then they were going to be together. She denies all of this. She says this was not going to happen, that she wasn't paying them. And her attorney points out that, you know, his fantasy bubble had been popped when he realized that she wasn't coming to him just all full of love and full of thankfulness that he had saved her from this marriage. And so he and these boys, they were putting together this plan and coming up with these ideas and, you know, getting their story straight so that they could set her up and make it look like she had orchestrated everything. So... At this point, all of these boys have been released from prison on parole. Billy Flynn served the longest time. He served 25 years. He was released at the age of 41 to a wife that he married while he was incarcerated. And he's currently free, living his own life. All of the others were released long before that. Pamela continues to be incarcerated. She maintains her innocence. She says she had no part in the murder of her husband. She claims that she never, never talked to 
anybody about murdering her husband. And she's been told every time she has filed an appeal, every time she's come up for parole, that her lack of remorse and her refusal to take any responsibility in the part of her husband's death is the reason that she remains in prison. But she says it doesn't make any sense because she shouldn't profess guilt to a crime that she didn't commit. So she shouldn't say that she's guilty of this just so she can get out of prison because she didn't do it. So she continues to maintain her innocence. There's a lot of people out there who maintain that she is innocent, that she did not do this. Her family, her friends, they all say she absolutely could not have done this. But none of these boys have come forward and changed their story. Cecilia Pierce has not changed her story. She still maintains that Pamela did this, that everything that she said was true. So it's all of their word against Pamela's and there is no evidence to the contrary. So you make up your mind. Is she guilty? Is she innocent? You tell me. For our mystery today, I've kept it with the school theme. And we are going to go to Chaco, Mexico. So please forgive me if I get some of these names wrong because I do not do very well with some of these names. But we are going to talk about the school Girls Town that is in Chaco, Mexico. So I'm going to give you some background first and then we're going to talk about the mystery that happened there that sometimes called the haunting of Girls Town. But this is this was really interesting. I hadn't heard of it. It happened in 2006 and it is crazy. So Aloysius Schwartz, he's an American. Um, he was the founder of World Villages for Children and the Sisters of Mary. He was a champion of the poor and built countless girls towns and boys towns throughout the world in impoverished areas to provide free education and technical training for children. These were run by the Sisters of Mary Catholic nuns. In 1990, Father Schwartz was invited to Mexico to discuss building a girl's town outside of Mexico City. Uh, construction was started in 1991, but at this point, Father Schwartz was already afflicted by ALS and he was getting bad. He knew that he would probably not see the completion of this project, but he was really excited about getting this started. This was a project that he really wanted to do. So he died in 1998 uh, Chaco Girls Town provided women's training in dressmaking, and it provided work at local factories in Mexico City and the surrounding areas once the girls had graduated high school. So those who did not go into the factories 
or go home to their villages, became teachers or nuns. So what these schools did was they were boarding schools. And they would go out and they would get or recruit kids. Um, They had girls' towns and they had boys' towns. So these were girls or boys that would go to these schools. And they would go to villages, some of them hundreds of miles away. And they would recruit these kids. And they would bring them in to these boarding schools and they would provide them with their education starting in like middle school and they would give them their free education free boarding and everything and then they would help them get jobs and stuff and the hopes were to help them to break that um, cycle of poverty and to help them to do better for themselves, and to do better for their families, and even to send back some money to their villages and help their villages out. So this school, this girl's town in Chaco, Mexico, it houses 3,000 students from the ages of 12 to 17. So when they go into these villages, they only allow one child per family to be at the school at a time. Multiple children in that household could go, but only one at a time could be there. They won't take like two siblings. They would take like one sister could go, and then once that sister graduated, another sister could come in, but they would only have one at a time. Students go home for two weeks during the summer and two weeks at Christmas. And that's the only time they go back home every year during their time there. And they go from the age of 12, so about the beginning of middle school, all the way through until they graduate from high school. Other than this, they receive letters from their family so they can get letters from their family But they don't write back. They don't get to send letters back to their family. And they don't get phone contact. So the only time they get to communicate back to their family is for those four weeks each year. Two weeks during the summer and two weeks during Christmas. Outside of that, their family can send them letters so they can get news about what's going on in their family. But they can't send news about what's going on with them. They can't communicate back. And students don't get to bring any personal items into the school. So when they come into this school, they don't bring anything. They come in with what they're wearing. They can't bring any type of personal item. They can't bring any jewelry. They can't bring any pictures nothing. They're given uniforms that they wear and everything that they need for themselves. They don't bring anything with them. So we're going to start in the fall of 2006. So remember this was built in 1991. So fall of 2006 This is when this whole haunting started. And it started with just a couple of girls. 
they began to complain with some pains in their legs. First, it was just like pins and needles and, you know, those little tingly pains that are kind of frustrating, you know, and kind of achy, but nothing major. And then the pain started to increase and they couldn't stand. Their legs would buckle when they would try to stand and it was like they were paralyzed. This pain began to spread and by the spring of 2007, approximately 600 of the 3,000 students were afflicted. The Sisters of Mary brought in doctors who ran a battery of tests, but they couldn't figure out what was going on. I mean, these girls seemed to be fine. They couldn't find any physical reasons that they were having these issues. They weren't having any viruses. They didn't have any type of muscle problems. They didn't have any type of spinal injuries. There were no broken bones. There were, were no malnourishment. There wasn't anything that they could find that would be causing this. So, they suggested that they bring in psychiatrists because these girls, they just, even though they couldn't, the doctors couldn't find anything, they couldn't stand. When they would try to make them stand, they would fall. Their muscles were starting to atrophy, they're screaming in pain, and they couldn't find any evidence that they were faking these things. So they brought in psychiatrists, and this is when things really started to get interesting. Because most of the articles that I read kind of glossed over some of the details, or quickly ran through some of them, leaving out some information. And some of them would pick up a little bit of information here and a little bit of information there. And you had to read like a ton of articles to put together the information. But I did find an article that had a lot of the information and it was all put together. And then when I was reading other articles and you put all of these articles together, it had all the same information that this one article had. It took 10 articles to put all the information together. So... The information was there, it just, all of them kind of glossed over it or really didn't want to mention much about this information because it was kind of odd. So, I will use the one source that I got found the information in that, that had it all put together already, but I will tell you that I did find other articles and verified the information but this one article that I found it used names that were changed for privacy so I'm going to use those names and just so that you know I'm going to use those names and stick with those names for simplicity. So Dr. Zavala was the psychiatrist and the first child that she met with was 12 year old Zitlali. And she described her pain as being in her knees and her back. She said that she was unable to stand and she was worried about becoming a burden on her friends who had to carry her 
to her classes and back to her bed every day because this was like you know at this time they were still having these girls go to classes and you know trying to get them to be as active as possible so she she was worried that they were going to get tired of this and Zitlali told Zavala about her family and about how she came to the school last fall. She then said something that stopped the doctor kind of in mid-scribble. She said, I see babies that have their cords like fetuses. Sometimes they're ugly, bloody, and with red eyes and wrinkled faces. Zitlali went on to tell the doctor about being afraid of the babies and then ended with, we have to be careful with our eyes because with our eyes, we can go to hell. As more girls fell sick with this mysterious illness and doctors continued to be baffled, Dr. Zavala spent more time with them she interviewed them she asked them about their lives before coming to the school and what life was like at the school she had a feeling that there was something more to this mysterious illness than what they could see so dr zavala she came into this kind of in the middle of this as you know more girls were still getting sick they hadn't quite gotten to that 600 yet but she was seeing that, okay, there was something going on here. Doctors can't figure this out. And after talking to Zitlali, there was something really odd going on. So in January 2007, she meets 15-year-old Jovita. And she really starts to see that, okay, maybe something really odd's going on. So in January, Jovita starts feeling sick. She says that she, she tried to pray and stay calm when her lower body started to ache. You know, it's pretty common when people around you are getting sick and you start to feel those symptoms yourself and you're trying to stay calm and you're trying to say no that's not going to happen that's not what this is and that's what she was doing you know she's trying to stay calm and she's trying not to let herself believe that that's what's going on and then she started to feel the pinpricks and then it was like there were screeching and her legs just, they hurt so bad, and she couldn't stand. When she tried to get up one morning, her legs buckled, and she fell, and she couldn't get back up. And she knew that she had the sickness. Dr. Zavala was called, and when she finally got around to interview her, because remember, there are hundreds of girls that are sick at this point, and she's trying to see all of these girls. And she is the only psychiatrist there. So she is going and she's interviewing all of these girls. She didn't really know that Jovita held the clue to all of this mystery. You know, she 
was the one with the key to unlock what was going on here. So during the first interview, Jovita told Dr. Zavala that before becoming ill, she had encountered a strange experience in the bathroom. Jovita had been in a stall and she said she heard a flush in another. She thought this was strange because she was pretty sure she was alone in the bathroom. And she hadn't heard footsteps and hadn't seen anyone walk by her stall. And then Jovita said that she came out of her stall and went to check the others. And she heard a flush from the stall that she just came from. So she turned around and went back to check that one and then heard a flush from a stall behind her. So she got scared and she ran out of the bathroom. Because these toilets are just flushing back and forth and she's the only one in this bathroom. So Jovita also told Dr. Zavala that she refused to take a bed near the window when they did bed rotations. Because see, when these girls move into their room, they move into a big room with bunk beds. And when they move into their room, they pick their bed and then ever so often they do bed rotations because they're not supposed to become attached to anything. They don't become attached to their house mother. They shouldn't become attached to the girls that they're with or their beds because this isn't their family. This isn't where they're going to be. They don't want them to really get comfortable there and you know, feel attached to any of them. They want them to see it as this is your school and you're here to learn and that's it. So when they do these bed rotations, she wouldn't take a bed near the window because she was afraid to look out the window at night and see spirits of girls who had died at the school in the past. She claimed that other girls had said they had seen these spirits, and she was really afraid of seeing these spirits. Dr. Zavala and Jovita talked about the unusual occurrences and when they'd started, and Jovita told Zavala that all of this started around a field trip to a Catholic university in central Mexico. So Jovita told her that when she'd first come to the school, there wasn't really anything strange going on. That she hadn't noticed anything, that everything was normal and stuff. And then they took this this trip to this Catholic school. So it, it had been, you know, a couple of years into her time at the school. And they took this trip, and during this field trip, one of the girls found a magazine that contained a guide to making a Ouija board. So, at their school, they were not allowed to have magazines. They weren't supposed to have any type of magazines. They were only supposed to have their books that were allowed for their schooling. They weren't supposed to have really anything outside of what was given to them through the school. But when they went on this trip to this university, this girl found the magazine and they found this guide. And well, Jovita had a friend from her village 
that she knew. This was the only girl that she knew when she came to the school. So she had kept pretty close to this friend and they they kind of gravitated toward each other and stayed close to each other no matter what what dorm room they were in you know what floor they were in and stuff because they knew each other and it was kind of a comfort this girl's name was maria and maria made a ouija board and she began to use this board late at night out on the roof so jovita was on the sixth floor and maria was also on the sixth floor So several girls on that floor would sneak out through a window so they wouldn't wake the floor mothers. And they could go out through this window and go out on the sixth floor roof. And that's where they would use this board and call the spirits for fun. And at first it really was just a game for fun. But then Maria started to ask the spirits to do favors for her. Like, she asked for her friend's team to win the basketball tournament. And her friend's team did win the basketball tournament. And word started to spread about Maria's magic. Because she started to ask for other favors, too. The problem was that this started to anger some of the girls. You see, this friend whose team won the basketball tournament wasn't in their dorm room. And so she wasn't on Maria's team. And so Maria's teammates were really mad because Maria was conspiring with spirits and using black magic to help another team. And so all of the girls that wasn't on this friend's team were complaining to their dorm mothers. And so word started to get out that Maria was using black magic to win games. And you know, basketball was the only thing that they had that was any type of individuality. Everything else in the school was meant to make them conform and be exactly like each other. They dressed exactly the same. Everybody on every floor dressed exactly the same. They all studied the same things in each grade level, studied the exact same things. They were all studying. They were all training to be dressmakers in factories. They would all be sent to the same factories in the same areas, you know, all have the same opportunities to go to these same factories for these same jobs. And the only time they had any type of competition, the only time they were ever singled out and anybody was even thought to be better or more talented than anybody else was in these basketball games where each dorm, each floor had their own dorm teams and they played against each other. So, this was a big deal. And when Maria started using this magic, and suddenly these girls that thought this was cool and fun and wanted to be a part of it, the girls that weren't included because they weren't friends or there were already too many girls that were 
crowded around Maria and so they couldn't get into that crowd or the ones that just thought it was so dumb and so lame and you know were jealous or the ones that really didn't even know anything about it until they heard about it because of this basketball game all of a sudden everybody's up in arms about this and they're all complaining and this is when the mother superior found out the thing was that mother superior didn't even know what a Ouija board was she found out that this that there was somebody in the dorms that had a Ouija board she had asked one of the lay teachers that wasn't a nun what a Ouija board was when she found out that it had something to do with evil witchcraft she became really angry she started going through everybody's possessions and found it in Maria's so she made the decision to expel Maria Maria felt that this was very unfair. You know, she wanted to stay in the school. She wanted to continue her studies. She wanted to have the opportunity to get out of her village, to get out of poverty, and to be able to make something of herself. Even if it was just to work in a factory making dresses she wanted to have the opportunity to make some money and to do something for herself. So this was horrible. She she didn't want to be expelled. Being expelled and being thrown back into her village was worse than the strict rules and the uniformity of the school. She feared leaving would condemn her to a life of poverty. And so she started pointing out all of these other girls that had played. And why should she get expelled when all of these other girls were doing it too? Why was she the one that was singled out for this? Why was it just her that's being thrown out? But Maria was considered the influence. She was... The one who the board was found on. She was the one that made the board. So she was considered the influencer who had brought this evil into the school and influenced all these other girls. So she was moved out of her dorm that day and moved to an unused dorm room in another area to be returned the next day to her home. Now, none of the girls witnessed what happened next, but they were told that there was a gust of wind that went through the room, and, well, Hovita saw the aftermath of this, and she said it was just awful. She told Dr. Zavala that it was horrifying. What they were told happened was... Maria was made to move out of the sixth floor dorm and move into an empty dorm where nobody else was at so she could not have any influence over these girls anymore. And as the nun that was moving her took her into this empty dorm, apparently a gust of wind blew through this empty dorm and Maria was walking through and she had put her hand on the door frame. As she's walking through and she had one finger still on the door as the wind blew the door shut 
and it cut off a piece of her finger. And blood squirted everywhere in the hall. And Jovita saw the blood that was all over the hall. And she said it was everywhere. And Maria later, when she was being moved out, she was so upset. She was just devastated that she was being kicked out of the school. So she put a curse on everybody who accused her of being the one that made the board, that used the board, that made them play with the board, or that had ever thought badly of her, that they would be sick in their legs. And they would not be able to walk. And Maria was removed from the school. And she was never seen again. And it was after she was removed from the school that the sickness began. And all of the girls that became sick were put on one floor. So that it it would be easier to take care of them. So after Maria was left. And the girls started to get sick. As more and more girls became sick, they realized at that point it was not going to be easy for them to continue to go to school. It was not going to be easy for them to continue to rely on other girls to carry them and help them back and forth. And for nuns to be running from one dorm to the other. So they started putting them all on one floor all together where they could take care of them. And Hovita was included because she had become ill at this time. She became the one that Dr. Zavala was talking to the most because she knew Maria the best and she was giving her very vivid details. Her and a few other girls, but Hovita was the one that was talked about the most in this article. So... They were put all on this one floor and they all started having difficulty determining what was reality and what was nightmares, what was hauntings, what was hallucinations. Jovita told Dr. Zavala that some of the girls said that there was a nun known as Mother Sitlali moving through the beds massaging their legs in silence. She would move through and every night she would come through and massage a few girls' legs at a time. It wasn't like she was going through and massaging all of them in one night. Because remember, there's 600 girls in there. There are a lot of girls in this one floor. And not all of them are in the same dorm area in this one floor. So they're getting messages passed through. So, one night, Jovita saw her, but it wasn't one of the nuns in the school. She said it was dark in the room, and all she could see was the silhouette. She could see that it didn't look right. It didn't look like somebody she knew. And as the silhouette got closer, she could see it was a white figure that was walking through and massaging the girl's legs. It just didn't look right. And then the next day, all of the girls, as they were comparing, they decided they'd been visited by the Virgin Mary. And there continued to be tales of the girls seeing ghosts, hearing babies cry in the darkness, 
and even seeing them hanging in the halls. From the time Hovita had arrived at the school, she had heard tells of a girl who had died of tuberculosis, like early when the school first opened. And this girl apparently appeared in different parts of the school, often with blood on her face. This was one of the, you know, the school's ghost stories. Well, now all of a sudden this girl was being seen all the time. The media started hearing about this strange sickness. And so they started arriving at the school. So as the media was being alerted and as the media was starting to come in and this was being broadcast, now parents were starting to hear because you remember these girls weren't allowed to write to their parents. They weren't allowed to call their parents. Their parents had no clue what was going on at the school. So now all of a sudden, the media is getting a hold of this. And now this is being broadcast. Now now parents are finding out, oh my gosh, all these girls at this school that my daughter's going to are getting sick. And I don't know if my daughter's sick. I don't know who's sick. So parents are coming from all over Mexico to see if their daughters are sick. And these are parents that are extremely poor. And they're having to ride buses for hundreds of miles. They're spending days coming in just to check on their daughters. And some of them, they're desperate to save their daughters, to find out if their daughters are okay. So the media starts to focus on the nuns. And there's stories of mistreatment that are spreading. Um, The mother superior says that she believes that the girls have a virus. And this is why she hasn't contacted any of the families because she did not want to send these girls home and send them back to these villages to spread a virus to the families, to the villages. She didn't want to send them out into Mexico City. She wanted to keep this virus contained. And that's why she put them all on one floor and she had the doctors there and stuff and they were treating them and they were taking care of this so that was her explanation for why she didn't send these girls home or contact these girls families but they'd already been checked by doctors they had already had doctors come in and doctors say there was no virus there was no illness there was no reason for these girls to be sick they had no clue what was going on and This mother superior did not call these families. So what was really happening at Girlstown in Chaco, Mexico? The nuns thought it was possible that the girls had caught a virus and that it had passed quickly through the girls. And for some reason, these doctors just weren't catching it. But there were so many girls that were sick by the end of this. But there were still a lot of them that didn't get sick. There were a a lot of girls. I mean, we're talking 600 girls, and that's a lot of sick girls. But there were 3,000 that were there, and none of the nuns were sick. So you have none of these adults, none of these teachers that are getting sick, and it's all just these teenagers that are sick. It wasn't until they had too many girls sick for them to keep a regular schedule 
that they isolated them. So it wasn't like these girls were being kept out of the mainstream. It wasn't like these girls were getting sick and they were isolating them immediately. So they weren't really doing anything. Doctors were examining them and they weren't finding any medical reason, which is why they called the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist didn't get sick. There was rumors of mistreatment of the girls that had spread through the media. The school was really strict and really regimented. The girls weren't allowed to watch TV, listen to radios. They didn't read magazines. Any type of magic or occult practice was strictly forbidden. They wore all the same clothes, haircut. There was no individualism at all. These girls were getting the same education. I mean, everything was very, very strict at this school. But despite how strict everything was, there wasn't any evidence of any type of mistreatment. And none of the students reported any type of mistreatment that had gone on any time in the past or any time right then. Like, none of the girls, despite how strict it was, despite how different it was, once the girls got used to it there, they didn't want to leave. And it really became home. It was very regimented. It was very structured. But nobody was mean to them. Nobody was, it was strict, but it wasn't mean. Another theory is mass hysteria. Outbreaks of mass hysteria have been documented as far back as the Middle Ages. And it continues today. They occur more often in children and teenagers. And more often in girls than boys. Once afflicted, the illness can linger for days. It usually disappears once the afflicted crowd disperses. And mass hysteria usually occurs when there is a heightened excitement or stress within the crowd. Like a group of teenagers who've been playing with a Ouija board in a very strict Catholic-run school. And who believe they have just been cursed by a girl who's convinced them all that she's a witch. And has taken the fall for them and has just been expelled from the school. So this might have been a very small cluster of girls that had actually been with Maria. But there were a lot of other girls that might have made their own boards because they wanted to be involved in this too. And so there might have been other girls that were actually playing with Ouija boards too. There might have been other girls that were criticizing Maria because remember she said anybody who thought badly of her. There might have been other girls who were sharing ghost stories and talking about ghost stories and that were spreading rumors. And so there's a lot of these things that could have been going on that is why so many of these girls were afflicted when she cursed all these girls. And so this would account for so many of them suddenly getting sick. And when she cursed them, it was such a specific you know, getting sick in the legs and not being able to walk. 
And then when you have the first few girls that suddenly have these pains and then they're describing how they feel and then all these others start getting sick and then they start describing how they feel once others hear this then it's easy to think oh yeah I'm feeling this oh my god I've got this and then they start to believe that this is what's happening to them too so this could cause a lot of anxiety this could cause a lot of stress and this is already on top of this already very rigid very strict environment and these rumors of this curse is being passed around there are girls that might have been scared that they would be caught that they would be found out that there was that they had these Ouija boards or that they had been messing around with this stuff too girls who felt guilty or believed that the curse was going to fall on them because they had thought things or they had said things because remember these girls are in this strict catholic school many of them might have been catholic to begin with or might have grown up in very strict religious homes so this theory just says you know states that if they believed in this curse and they believed so strongly that they had been cursed that this could have caused this physical illness that doctors could not find. They couldn't find a reason for this illness. And then there's a the possibility that Maria did curse them. You know, maybe she was an evil witch. Maybe there really were spirits attached to that board that she conjured and used to curse all these other girls. But why would she curse the girls and not the nuns that were kicking her out? It's not like the girls were kicking her out. I mean, yeah, some of the girls told off on her and okay, but not all of them. So, I mean, who knows? The mother superior believed that evil had invaded her school and she had a priest come and perform an exorcism. But this exorcism didn't work. So, she had the nuns perform traditional Chinese therapy because these nuns that were running this school were Korean. So she had them perform these traditional therapy that included sprinkling plant powder on the girl's legs and lighting it on fire. Well, this failed. Dr. Zavala continued to treat the girls and they began to improve. However, Dr. Zavala started to have nightmares. She thought this was due to the girls' descriptions of their dreams. She thought this was due to the girls' descriptions of their dreams of Maria burning and surrounded by flames, telling them that they were next. The girls said they would wake up screaming. They also told her of their homes and their families. They told her of stories of poverty and divorce, of abuse and neglect. As the girls started to participate in these group therapy sessions, they started to get better. Their nightmares started to go away. They started to become more physically strong. And they started to be able to walk again and be able to participate in class again.
In March 2007, the nuns tried to reach Maria and her family to see if the supposed witchcraft had been reversed. But Maria and her family had moved and no one could find them. So the official diagnosis that doctors gave the girls was psychogenic disorder of movement consistent with conversion disorder. So a psychogenic disorder is caused by an abnormal psychiatric state that comes on due to stress. So this can cause tremors, twitches, shaking, or jerking motions of the face, neck, limbs, and cause balance issues. But this can also cause some type of paralysis. A conversion disorder can cause problems with the nervous system and can be explained, cannot be explained solely by physical illness or injury. So these are symptoms that happen after a period of emotional or physical distress or psychological conflict. So these things put together can cause paralysis, can cause, you know, some type of tremors, jerking, any type of disability or something that would usually be caused by an injury, but there's no physical reason for it. It's usually caused by an illness or some type of stress that isn't physically lingering and doesn't physically cause the damage that would cause this type of reaction, but it's because of the physical stress and the emotional stress. So, what caused this? Was this a psychological disorder that 600 teenage girls had at one time that was brought on by stress and fear? Was Maria really bringing evil spirits into the school and inflicting this illness on the girls? Was the school haunted? I found this really, really interesting because there were so many girls in this that was afflicted by it at one time. And I found it really interesting that it was so recent. I mean in the 2000s and that the psychiatrist was able to work with them and use therapy to help them to get better and that our modern day medical marvels could not figure it out. So if you have any ideas that you would like to you know throw at me and stuff what you think this was I would love to hear them that's my story and I will see you next time bye